Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. What most of you do not know is that Senator Scott has served in a multiplicity of political offices, and I have not. He is from South Carolina. I am not. He's a U.S. senator. I am not, but we're both Scots. <laughs> That's pretty good, sir. That's excellent. Forgive me, I've been wanting to use that for a long time. <laughs> I like to say, sir, that we are brothers from an, another mother. We are. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> when I asked Senator Scott if I could interview him, I said I have three questions. And the first question is this. Where did you grow up, and what were the influences on your life as a youngster and then growing up? Yes, sir. I grew up in North Charleston, a single-parent household. Perhaps the two biggest influences on me growing up was my mother, and uh, thank God for a strong mama. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my jokes I tell often is that as a freshman in high school, I was flunking out. I failed world geography. I became the first U.S. senator to ever fail civics, the study of politics. <laughs> I also failed Spanish and English, and when you fail Spanish and English, no one calls you bilingual. <laughs> they all call you by ignit, because you can't speak in any language. And, and uh, I had a strong, powerful mother who took me by the, by the loving arm and she introduced me to a southern apparatus of encouragement called a switch. <laughs> she encouraged me a lot. Uh, and then my second blessing was having a, a Chick-fil-A mentor, a guy named John Moniz, who was a Citadel grad, who taught me that I could think my way out of poverty, not to suggest that those in poverty aren't thinking, but to suggest that I, a guy who was about to flunk out of high school, wasn't thinking, and he was a Christian who gave me a solid biblical example along with my mother that in America, all things are possible because we understand a Judeo-Christian foundation. And then, of course, that led me to Presbyterian College. We're on a football scholarship, and I became a Christian uh, September 22nd, 1983 at Presbyterian College. Tell us a little about how your faith impacts your leadership as a U.S. Senator? It really is the foundation of my leadership as a servant, to be honest with you, of our country. I remember my first several months in Congress, I kind of felt like I was swimming against the current, drinking from my fire hydrant. And I, I can't say I've heard the Lord or felt an impression from the Lord very often, maybe three or four times in my life. And once I felt this impression and I knew it had to come from the Lord, and it simply said, I miss my time with you. That all the challenges that were going on, I was trying to face them by studying and preparing. And the word that came to me in my heart was, spend more time in my word than you ever have before, and that you will experience a peace that passes all understanding, and that you will be properly equipped for the battle at hand. And he led me to Ephesians 6, of course, 10 through 16, and really bathed me in this notion that for me to serve, I have to first be in the presence of the Lord and in his word so that I would be strengthened and encouraged to serve the masses. 
What an incredible answer from a U.S. senator. Isn't that spectacular? Absolutely spectacular. Now, this, of course, is a presidential year, and elections are coming. Can you encourage our congregation in terms of registering to vote, participating in the political process, highlight the importance of that for us. I really don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent. My theory is that to be a good American, there's this notion called advanced citizenship, which requires all of us to engage in the active process of making America better. One of the ways that we can do that is by voting, and not simply voting on election day, but studying the stance and positions of the candidates. Too often we see a lot of negative campaigns on the air. I think it's better for us to see what they have done to compare that to what they say they're going to do to make very good decisions. Uh, I have been studying the book of Daniel myself, uh, looking at where America is and, and, and what is possible for Christians in a very changing world. And it appears to me that all things are truly possible for those who will bow their knees and find themselves in the presence of the Lord. And if we're going to do that and get off our knees, then we have to do something. James 2.17 says, faith without works is dead. So we have to actively participate in improving the country by voting and studying the candidates. Senator, when you run for the presidency, please let me know and I will be glad to vote, Very good, as will many folks here. Please <laughs> give a warm thank, thank to you. Senator Scott. Please be seated as I'm going, to, I'm going to ask Senator Scott to lead us in a prayer for the nation. Thank you, sir. Uh, let me just say, as I, uh, as I think about how the Lord wants us to pray, there's nothing special about me except for I found Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And if our nation would truly appreciate and understand the power of 2 Chronicles 7:14, that those who fall on their knees and pray, repent, and turn from our wicked ways, God can heal our land. I think America is still the light that shines for the world because of our foundation. So please join me in prayer, uh, not that we would get it right, but that we would allow God, through his son Jesus Christ, to work in our hearts to make it right. Dear Heavenly Father, we need you. I need you desperately. We look around our nation and our world and we see violence, we see volatility. We, we sometimes are disillusioned. But Lord, I'm always strengthened and encouraged when I look into your word and I, I see in your word that, Lord, whether it's in Jeremiah and 70 years of being on the outskirts or whether it's in the book of Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom or under David as the leader of Israel, God, in good times and in bad times, Lord, you reign. And I pray, God, that this nation and her people would fall on our knees, repent, and pray. I thank you, God, that your anointing and your hand is on this nation still. I pray that the righteous would stand up and be counted and that we would love our neighbors 
in a powerful way. And that through loving our neighbors and exemplifying the word of God by walking it out, not just talking it, but walking it out, that we would draw all men and women unto you. Lord, have your way with this nation. We fall on our knees, we pray for forgiveness, and then we stand up and we actively participate in loving our neighbors and bringing the light of the world, Jesus Christ, into each home that we touch. I thank you, Lord, for the miracle that is at our doorsteps. You do the work, God, and you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are coming to our final study in the series on the Apostles' Creed, and we are turning to Revelation chapter 21 for our Scripture reading today. So if you have your Bible, can you turn to Revelation 21 as we are reading together verses 1 through 7, and you'll find it on page 1937. I'm delighted that Justice John Kittredge is joining us this morning to read the Scriptures for us. John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the th throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And all the children of God said, Amen. During January and February and March this year, we spent those first three months exploring the early chapters of Revelation. And you heard me say back then that whenever we think of the book of Revelation, we are tempted to believe that Revelation is a bewildering, incomprehensible, opaque book packed with complex imagery, symbolism, and apocalyptic writing. And it is. And yet, our experience as a congregation and individuals has also been this, that when we open up God's Word on a Sunday morning, and especially in those early chapters of Revelation, what we discovered was this, that it wasn't always incomprehensible, filled with apocalyptic symbolism, but in fact, once we began to explore it, and once we began to engage with it, we discovered it was God's Word speaking into our lives, equipping us to engage with life in a 21st century cultural setting. Now, if you were with us back in 
January, February, March, you will remember that John wrote the book of Revelation around the year 95 AD. He was writing to a group of seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. If you go to Turkey today, you can find some of the uh, some of the ruins of the church is still there. And on one occasion, I think it was our last Sunday in that study, I read a letter to you from one of those churches who are still in existence. And John was writing in pastoral terms to bring encouragement and comfort to these seven churches for this reason. The Roman emperor Domitian had just introduced empire-wide persecution. And some of the people that John was writing to would know what it means to have their homes confiscated, their land taken, their family members arrested and tried and tortured and persecuted. And John himself had been persecuted for his faith, and in writing this letter, he was exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. And so he's writing to people who have genuine fears, uncertain about their future, were longing to see God at work in their midst, and so he writes Revelation. As you come to chapter 21, you're coming towards the end of the book, and John writes to encourage them. And notice how he begins at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And what John is telling us is this, that at the culmination of all of history, and when the eternal purposes and plans of God come to fruition and come to a climax, it's not so much the end of all of God's created order, but in fact, it's the beginning of a new creation, a new heaven, new heaven, and a new earth. And it's almost as if God presses control, alt, delete, and allows us to begin again. That's what's going on here. And it's a powerful reminder for John's readers that God is still in control, and we're about to see that later in this passage. And I suspect as you were reading those opening verses, a new heaven and a new earth, you also wondered, why does John add, there will be no sea? That seems an odd thing to put in there, is it not? And some of you on a Sunday night settle down and watch PBS and enjoy natural history programs, and I particularly enjoy them, especially when they're watching whales or sharks or deep sea diving. And you think, will we miss all of that, the wonder of God's created order in terms of the deep sea? Will there be no body of water in the new heaven and new earth? Well, that's not what John is saying. You have to go back to the first century to understand this, that when John says there will be no sea, that sea was symbolic in the first century for disaster and chaos. These churches lived relatively close to the sea. People in Israel, likewise, are not far from the coast. And they would know what happens when a storm gets up. 
and it interferes with trade and travel, and it brings chaos and flooding and disaster. And what John is saying is this, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no such thing as chaos and disaster. Why? Because God Himself will be dwelling among humanity. Did you see that? A new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. God prepared as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And God will dwell there with His people. And the forces of chaos and disaster and darkness are gone. And then he writes what is one of the best-known verses in all of the book of Revelation, and we often hear it at funerals, and it comes right there in verse 4. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Last Sunday morning, if you were with us, you will remember we looked at the passage, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. And we spent a substantial amount of our time last Sunday morning looking at what sin is, its nature and character, and its effects when it impacts a life. And on that great and final day, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, there will be no more sin and no more pain and no more tears and no more death. The deceptive, enticing, enslaving, tranquilizing addictiveness of sin will no longer exist. We will no longer turn on our news of an evening and hear of a car bomb or a suicide bomb going off in Iraq and killing 140 people. We will no longer hear of terrorists committing atrocities that are almost unimaginable in nightclubs or gun violence in shopping malls and theaters and schools, all a thing of the past. No more human trafficking. No more child abuse. No more domestic violence. No more having to pick up the pieces of lives that are broken and traumatized and devastated by alcohol and drug addiction and adultery. No more pain. No more tears. No more concern. The living God will be there in our midst. And those of you this morning who are wrestling with the trauma and overwhelming sadness of terminal illness will no longer have to face it. Parents and grandparents who are slipping away through Alzheimer's, dementia, no longer. And the people in those early churches needed to hear that God would still be in control, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and no more pain, and no more crying, and no more tears. And then He takes us a step further. And when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, it is for one reason, and it's there in verse 6. 
And John writes, it is done. Very similar to the words of Golgotha. It is finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all of God's plans, His eternal decrees, will come to fruition in that moment. And we will experience God at a level that is for us at this time unimaginable. Even though we know what it means to be impacted by the gospel, even though we know what it means to have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and have intimacy with God, even though we have all of those blessings, the Apostle Paul says this, on this side of eternity, this side of eternity, we still look through a glass darkly. But when that day comes, when we understand the importance of being a people whose dreams are more important than their memories, who are more focused on where they are going than where they have been, on that day we shall see Him as He truly is in all of His transcendent majesty and power and glory, in all of His eternal love and grace. And the only thing we will be able to do is bow down in worship and in adoration, for we will be lost in His immensity. We will be caught up with His love and His grace and His goodness and His holiness, and our hearts will will rejoice to the point of breaking. Why? Because He is the Alpha and the Omega, the sovereign over all time, transcendent in majesty and imminent in grace. That's why John wanted to get it down. He wanted his readers to understand the wonder and the character and the power and the undiluted splendor and brilliance of our loving Heavenly Father. That's what's going on here. And when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, that's what we are looking forward to. Now, in this patriotic service this morning, we've heard from Senator Scott encouraging us to roll up our sleeves, participate in the political process, be responsible, use our vote, think and pray. But I suspect we also have concerns. And I wonder if you are here this morning almost shaking your head and saying, Richard, I am seriously concerned for our nation. I don't remember a time when it felt as bad as it is today. I'm worried about our culture and our values and our standards. And I'm praying for my children and my grandchildren, and I do not know what is coming. And I am worried and concerned, and quite honestly, I'm in despair. But please understand this. If that describes you this morning, you need to shift your focus.
And you need to shift your focus to this eternal truth that we are one nation under God. Not simply one nation, but one nation under God. And we carry that truth around in our pocket. We have it in our purse. It occupies a place in kitchen cabinets and drawers around our home, and we hold on to that promise. In God we trust, because He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. That's where our confidence lies. That's why we leave this morning encouraged, optimistic, profoundly dependent on Him. And allow me to leave you with the words of a hymn. In God we trust believing the promise of His Word. His hand sustains affirming the wonders of His love. His grace it knows no boundaries, transcends the test of time. For sacrifice births freedom upheld by love divine. The years before us call us to trust and faith and prayer. Our nation's hopes and freedoms remain within His care. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for this spectacular passage of Scripture this morning. And we thank You for the powerful reminder that You are the Alpha and the Omega, that You have sovereignly and will continue to be faithful to us as Your people. Father, enable us, please, to be Your people, a people who excel in grace and prayer and faith, a people deeply, profoundly in love with You. And so this morning we say, as a thankful nation, we offer dependent family prayers. And with pilgrim hearts we gather this morning expressing joyful praise. For your mercy is unceasing, your grace our daily bread, your providence eternal. This nation you have led. Your guiding hand brings freedom from misplaced fears and plans, and the crisis of the future remain within your plan. Father, hear our prayers, hear our hearts cry, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.